Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, image architect and stylist Law Roach. Roach discusses his background in psychology and the role that plays in his work today. One of the things that people don't realize about being a stylist is really cerebral. It's all psychology, right? So it's it's a lot of communication and then it's nonverbal communications. It's, you know, paying attention to that. Like I pay attention to what makes the girl's eyes light up or what makes them have that little wiggle, you know? So, so I pay attention to all that. So it's all psychology, honestly. The actual clothes are, are secondary. I think people work with me because of the way I make them feel and not the way that I make them look. Disrupting the fashion industry. I don't take that as your racist. I'm just taking like, you haven't had an opportunity to work with all this before. So let me show you how incredible it is for me to be here. You know, so it's just people are trained, right? If you come and you've done all these jobs, you've been an AD in all these huge campaigns. And the person that who holds my job has always been white, blue eyes and blonde hair. Then you're going to go to the white, blue eyes and blonde hair because you're conditioned to think that's what it looks like. So what I'm doing again is disrupting people's ideology and ideas of what I should look like. Working with Zendaya for over a decade and together elevating her to style icon status. Since I started working with her, she was a really, really young girl. We had one situation she said, and I forgot it, we were wearing something somewhere. She's like, but what if people don't like it or what if? And I just turned to her, put my hand, I rested my hands on her shoulder and I said, who gives a fuck? Who cares? What if, who cares? How do you feel? And she said, I feel beautiful. And we've never had that conversation again. And the importance of kindness. Yes, you could be the most talented person in the world, but if you're not kind and nice and respectful and appreciative and grateful, then it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't really move me anymore. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Hi. Good to how see you, you again. I'm I'm good, you know. It's it's this the 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 never-ending question of how are you? I'm actually really excited as of when we're recording tomorrow. I'm getting my second vaccination shot. So I'm mm, really excited. Very exciting. To be fully vaccinated and then still over overprotective and not take any risks because you know it's still a pandemic it is still a pandemic um so before we get into today's topic i do just want to briefly address something that is like we're recording this on friday afternoon it is like a current hot topic and i, I usually don't like weighing in on these things but 
I perhaps made the mistake of stepping in it this morning, and so I just wanted to address it. So there's a photo that began surfacing this morning of Zac Efron looking very, very different. He appears to have had both... I don't know if he had... There's a number. It could be a cheek implant. It could be Botox. It could be fillers. I mean, who's to say? Who's ever to say in these situations? I posted the image on Twitter with a caption saying that I miss Zac Efron's old face um, because I do. He looks very different and, and, and no doubt this work will settle and he might end up looking fantastic. But at present, he looks very different. And a bunch of people started commenting, saying very mean things about... Zach Efron, and then, you know, obviously a bunch of other people posted the photo. And there's now this discourse going on about sort of like people uh, attacking, people feeling like we are, we, not, you know, that there are people out there, I guess myself would be included in this, that are bullying Zach Efron and that we need to be more sensitive to the fact that, you know, he has spoken out about the fact that he has mental health issues in the past and that this is obviously not helping. Um, I get that. Um, I do just think, though, when you have someone, even in in public life or private, who looks one way, and then all of a sudden you see a photo of them, and they look radically different, and not and for for reasons that you know we we do not know, but for for as much as we do know, this is elective reasons. Right. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, but it's alarming, right? I understand that. You know, there was a level of shade implied in my post. I'm fully aware of that. That's kind of how I, how I often operate online. Um, but I just thought it was weird, or I still kind of think it's weird, watching all of these people come out to defend. It's like, again, it's like, this reminds me of the Chris Pratt yes. thing, but it's like, Zac Efron is just like this really hot, cis, white millionaire, and he's going to be okay. And he still looks good, mind you. It's just he went, he doesn't look the same, right? He's still Zach Efron. He is going to bag as many um, accolades for his hotness as he was bagging before. I just think it's really odd, like watching people go out of their way to sort of like try and use this as an example uh, of like larger conversations around um, body positivity yeah. or body sensitivity. Like, I don't think this is the example to use. And I also like, do I think that like uh, I chose low hanging fruit this morning in my comment, which I've now deleted? Yes. Like, do, do do I think I like was making one of like my more like salient points on the internet? <laughs> no, but like it's also Twitter. But I just feel weird because there were some quote tweets from friends of mine. I don't think they were calling me out, but they were calling out the idea that I would like poke that someone would poke fun at the way someone looks, and I just think that like. I don't think this is the example to use about that conversation. Um, at the same time, I'm willing to eat crow on this. Like, perhaps, uh, I don't, you know, there's a way, world in which, like, maybe I should have just kept my mouth shut. But I just think this is one of those situations in which, like, defending Zach Efron to me, there's just a lot of better uses of one's time. And I just, it's one of those instances where I deleted the tweet because I don't want to, it's not my intention to, like, incite the conversation that was happening. But at the same time, I also kind of feel like I feel like the conversation that's now swelling as a result to me is like super unproductive. And again, he looks really different. It's weird. And like, I just think it should be okay to admit that without feeling like you're being a bully or, or anything. So I don't know. Have you seen the photo? I did. I saw the photo and I saw your tweet. Um, and 
I'm like, I don't know. I, it's not like you you said, wow, he looks so bad. Like you just said he looks different. And I think the, the big problem is, is that so many cis hetero straight men, uh, hetero and straight are the same word I realize now, but let's go with it. Um, I think a lot of cis white men on the internet, just they have these staunch defenders that they don't, that they don't need. We talked about it with Harry Styles. We talked about it with Chris Pratt. We've talked about mm. it with Robert Downey Jr. And, and even those guys, the Marvel folks, like they don't, they don't need your help. They're fine. They'll be fine. I don't think Zac Efron gives a shit that you tweeted it this morning. Maybe he does. Who knows? But like, I don't know. I think people get upset when people pick on other people. That's a personal thing. I can't control how someone feels or tell them how to feel. But I do think it is weird that we continue to rush to the aid of these rich white men who do not need your help and often ignore, let's say, more important conversations on the periphery with people who are not straight, white or men. You know, that whole thing. I also think there's something to be said about, you know, because some people are making comparisons to when, I think it was like 2015, when Renee Zellweger stepped onto a red carpet looking very different and people were making comments on the internet. And I think those were steeped in misogyny. And I think that the difference here is that I think in the case of a woman in Hollywood of a certain age, there are expectations placed on women in Hollywood in order to book roles to look a certain way because of this sort of like... um the way we sort of just, uh, I was going to say fetishize youth, but it's not even fetishize. The way we just sort of uh, are constantly hung up culturally on youth. In the case of Zac Efron, he is not, this work that has been done, that I, I allegedly, I don't know, but whatever appearance he is making to himself um, is not in the effort to book work, is not sort of some adherence to a beauty standard that is perpetuated by Hollywood. Um at least I don't think so. Again, I don't want to make these blanket statements. I don't know. But I just think the sensitivity around the conversation, while I try and be sensitive to sensitivity, there is a part of me with this that's just, it, 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 again, he just looks really different. Um, I think that there is definitely a mean-spirited way in which, by me making the comment, the pile-on can happen. Sure. And so that's why I deleted it. Anyway, moving right along. I'll be curious, to, honestly, to see by the time this comes out on Tuesday where the conversation lands. But... You know, I wish him all the best. I am pro-plastic surgery. I am pro-Botox. I am pro-fillers. It's not shaming plastic surgery. It's just saying, hey, this person that looked one way the last time I saw them looks really differently. Ain't that funny? Okay. Today, I want to talk about um, another cis white man, uh, but this one, uh, not heterosexual. Um, so on April 14th, Colton Underwood went on Good Morning America in a 14-minute segment to say something that he could have said in a two-word tweet. I'm gay. He said, quote, Obviously, like, this year's been a lot for a lot of people, and it's probably made a lot of people look themselves in the mirror and figure out who they are and what they've been running from or what they've been putting off in their lives. And for me, I've ran for myself for a long time. I've hated myself for a long time, and I'm gay. I came to terms with that, and I came to terms with that earlier this year and have been processing it. And the next step in all of this was letting people know. Robin Roberts, who conducted the interview, then commented that through the nerves, she could see the joy. I can't say that I saw anything close to joy or relief or anything remotely emotional within the statement. It felt instead for me like a verbal press release um, and... That's kind of why I wanted to talk about this today. 
Obviously, this is a topic from last week, or almost two weeks ago at this point, and it was a hot topic then, but I think one of the things that I try to do, or we try to do rather on this podcast, is sort of take topics when the temperature has turned down on them a little bit so that we can sort of examine both what had happened, but I think what we often end up doing here on this podcast is examining the reaction to the what had happened. I mean, I think that was very much the case, you know, with our last episode, talking about the Khloe Kardashian photo. Um, And so that's kind of why, even though one could say this topic has been spoken about ad nauseum, and it has, I think there's still more to digest about it. Um, I had never heard the name Colton Underwood prior to April 14th. I had, however, seen him on the only clip I've ever seen of The Bachelor, besides the woman who faked the Australian accent. Um, But in this clip that I had seen, it was Billy Eichner was guest starring on an episode and made a joke about the fact that Colton might be gay. Some might, you know, say Billy Eichner is a soothsayer. I read the news of his coming out that morning, which was, again, this was like almost two weeks ago now. I was parsing through Twitter and I began to see the congratulatory tweets some saccharine welcoming him to the family and others that were a bit more jokey, pointing out that he'd now have to deal with all of the vanity-driven mores of gay existence. That was like 9 a.m. By noon, the tide had turned uh, to people uh, uncovering some details about Underwood's past, particularly bringing up allegations of abuse and stalking in a restraining order petition filed by Underwood's ex-girlfriend, Cassie Randolph, the winning contestant on The Bachelor. Quote, he has sent her unsettling text messages, repeatedly called her, and placed a tracking device on her vehicle to track her whereabouts, Randolph's request reads. It also alleges that Underwood has lurked outside Randolph's apartment and her family's home to, quote, track who is coming in and out of her apartment. After being confronted when the tracking device was found, Underwood allegedly confessed to stalking Randolph, including sending her text messages from an unknown phone number. He also sent them to himself so he could claim he was also being harassed, according to Randolph's restraining order filing. She later dismissed the restraining order and asked the police to drop the investigation. I do want to point out that just because a person asks the police to drop an investigation does not mean they are reneging on the allegation. I think that's really important to point out here because a lot of Colton's defenders are sort of pointing out the fact that, well, it's water under the bridge, and it's not. It's not necessarily water under the bridge. It's water under the bridge in the legal sense. Um, But as we know and as we often hear, uh, you know, I, I think of so many stories that have come out today Uh, just because there's not legal recourse or just because someone opts not to pursue legal recourse does not necessarily mean that is that is them saying um, that it did not happen so this is a complex conversation it very much is which is why we're having it here today on the one hand we live in a society in which homophobia is upheld even in some parts of our country the norm so any person being out and proud and visible seems at its basis level, like a win. Is there a reality in which other closeted people see Colton's story and from it gain the wherewithal or courage to accept who they are, embrace who they are, and or come out of the closet? Sure. Yes. I think it's important that we allow for that thought pattern that this coming out can be positive. However... (laughs) And this is the big however. I think Colton's coming out was a stunt. I think it was highly orchestrated by many people in suits who see dollar signs to be made. 
Colton's coming out lacks any kind of risk. He will only become more well-known and more wealthy through his coming out. So while he may feel like he had something to lose, from my vantage point, it's an easy decision to come out. So this could be perceived to be, or this could be seen as sort of a cynical view to place on things, sort of the idea that I'm sort of trying to chip away at at what many will see as a very brave admission. And I want to allow space for that because that could very much be true. And again, like I said, it's like there is a reality in which this is a big moment. I mean, the more, you know, you can take the viewpoint of strength in numbers, the more out LGBTQ plus people that exist in the world, the more the better the world will be, the more inclusive the world will be, the more it will encourage others to do the same. Maybe. Um, Tell me about, like, first of all, did you know, well, let's start here. Did you know who Colton Underwood was prior to April 14th? No, I did not. Okay. So now that you know all of this, besides the information that I just shared, did you see the initial coming out and did you have any reaction to it? So... Uh, I didn't see it when it, when he first came out. Um, I don't watch a lot of Good Morning America. Not that I avoid it. I just, it's not in my rotation, part of my morning ritual. Um, I, I didn't know about the story until you brought it up. Um, I think because of the circles that I roll in, well, there's a lot of queer folks in the video game industry and in the music industry. I just, I don't think it overlapped with this particular story. That said, everything I read and everything you've told me about, I, I, I'm sort of in the same place, I think, it's hard, right? Like like you said, when someone comes out, it's a base victory. And it's a defiance to the norm of homophobia and, and pushing down on the queer community. And also him being a shit. And, or allegedly a shit, let's say. Because it is allegedly. And stalking and doing all that terrible stuff. He could still be queer and do those things. Queer people are not immune to being shitty humans, especially queer men. However... What I'm curious about, I guess, and a question I'll throw back to you is, do you think if it was media orchestrated, do you think that he's not actually gay or that his announcement was orchestrated? Or do you think the whole message is orchestrated? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I I certainly think he's gay. I think that the message was orchestrated in that just, again, the grandiosity of it all, the going on GMA, the dedicating 14 minutes to, again, as I said up top, the words I'm gay um, verbally is it can be said in under one second. But also, it's just sort of like, I think that by making it such a headline, it, again, sort of sensationalizes the whole idea of being gay right. in a culture that I want to believe in 2021 Being gay no longer has to be the most interesting aspect about you. Obviously, it can be if you want it to be. But to me, I just find it odd that we as a society, especially queer people, are supposed to read headlines like this in 2021 and feel any type of way. Because one of my reactions I had to so much of what Colton was saying throughout his interview, in which he spoke about sort of the difficulties he's faced, was his experiences felt so familiar in that I just don't think, I think the struggle, I'm not, I'm not diminishing his struggles, but what I'm trying to say is that I think many, if not most LGBTQ plus people, particularly more marginalized subcategories within the LGBTQ plus community deal with the exact same thing, if not on an infinitely larger and more difficult scale 
but that said, it's like this is he's doesn't necessarily have to speak on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community. However, when you make a proclamation like this, that's sort of how it's how it's going to be received. You know, I'm reminded of when really famous people post pictures that are unretouched or with stretch marks showing or acne or pimples or what have you, and they write about their journey to self-acceptance. People love that yeah. shit. And most of the time, they look good in the unretouched photo. Like, they look just as good. Their vulnerability or their attempt at vulnerability is padded with the affirmation from hundreds, thousands, sometimes even millions of followers who make it okay. And bravery, for me, it has to come with, like, some, some sort of risk. It's not... It doesn't invalidate these people... And all of what they're saying, but it's to point out how we as a society have evolved in many ways. And so I think things like I'm reminded, for instance, of um, even like Caitlyn Jenner's coming out several years ago. Obviously, I know that there are transphobes out there, but from where I was sitting and, you know, in my universe, she was met with so much excitement both from inside the community and outside the community and again she's plastered on the cover of vanity fair straight away uh, in this full glam shot and and this is someone who mind you is like an outspoken republican and we as the lgbtq plus community for a while tried to get behind her and sort of ignore i think that aspect of her of who she is because we were trying to bolster um the visibility that someone like Caitlyn could could bring about. But going back to Colton, a conventionally attractive, wealthy, cisgender, white man coming out of the closet and in a heavily orchestrated Good Morning America sit-down, no less, feels a bit, if I may say, antiquated. And the skeptic in me also sees this coming out as an opportunity to shift the narrative away from stalker and onto something far more palatable, like coming out. Colton talked in his sit-down about the struggles he's faced. He said, quote, There was a moment in L.A. that I woke up and I didn't think I was going to wake up. I didn't have the intentions of waking up, and I did. Listen, this is not a man that, you know, can string together the most eloquent of sentences. But look, I'm not intending to diminish any suicidal ideations he had, but this irked me. As I was just saying, I don't know many queer people that I've encountered who haven't had moments in which they've pondered suicide or had thoughts about harming themselves. I'm not trying to say that I, I, it's, it's, it's a touchy topic, right? But I, I guess what I couldn't help but hear in his words was all of the privileges he walks through his everyday life with um, that made it so that he ultimately did get out of bed and was able to have a platform like Good Morning America to have his coming out and to, like I said, eventually profit from. I, I, I think about all of these queer people, and like I said, particularly trans people, particularly trans women of color, who deal with threats to their humanity and their lives every single day. By outside sources, in addition to the voices in our own heads that give us um, these thoughts that we are not worthy and potentially lead to suicidal ideations. Colton chose to make his coming out about him, as he is certainly allowed to do, but in doing that, he framed this story as unique for a large swath of the viewership of a show like GMA, who maybe that viewership hasn't encountered an out gay person in their lives. But for people, and again, I'm only going to speak on behalf of myself, this just felt like I've seen this story so many more times and in so many more resonant ways. Now again, maybe this wasn't for me because 
maybe there is that kid out there or even that adult out there who who these words, for whatever reason, the timing, what have you, uh, permeate th- them and, 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 and access something in them that allows them to feel more free. I'm reminded of the show I Am Kate, bringing it back to Caitlyn Jenner, um, which for all Caitlyn Jenner's flaws was actually a pretty groundbreaking show in that it passed the mic to other trans people and allowed for conversations that were far more multifaceted than that of Caitlyn Jenner, who exists in the world with white privilege and with wealth privilege despite being a trans woman. I'm not going to give Colton any kind of benefit of the doubt unearned, but I guess I'm deeply curious to see what happens next um, as he attempts to enter into his next chapter of public life as an out gay man. I don't want to necessarily like put the same responsibility onto him of saying, you need to do what Caitlyn Jenner did and pass the mic and use your platform to, you know, uh, to blah, blah, blah. Because he doesn't, he doesn't need to do that. Um, and nor is he a bad person if he doesn't. But at the same time, I keep thinking about the, the way in which he orchestrated this coming out and the fact that, in my mind, it read as, hey, cameras up, lights up, look at me. And so you've asked for this coming out moment. You've asked for this attention. You got it. And so I guess what I wonder now is like, what are you going to do with that now? And again, because this is a complex conversation, mixing in the fact that there are these allegations out there that don't sit well with me and I and I, I imagine a number of the people listening to this and, and that just know about this story and that don't feel as though we can feel, I was going to say proud, I'm not sure that's the word, but we can feel glad to have someone living their truth while also saying, okay, there are other truths about you that perhaps need to be addressed. Anything else you want to add? I just want to give you the opportunity in case you have anything else. I mean, I agree with you. I think we've had this complex conversation before, even when we were talking about, um, what was it? The holiday movie that came out, um, the queer holiday movie. What was the name of it? I'm Happiest season? Happiest season. Like we were talking about how the queer community is is allowed and even let's encourage to have mediocre holiday movies and cheesy romantic comedies because like that's a normal that's quote-unquote a normal thing it's the norm and so like i feel like orchestrated coming outs like this is not the norm the norm is a two-word tweet or whatever else you know or having a zoom call with your closest friends to tell them or whatever but like public coming outs on good morning america is a spectacle no matter mm. how you feel about it, it is absolutely a spectacle. It is a major show with a gigantic audience. There's no way Colton went on and went, I just, I have to get this off my chest. This is just about being truthful. That's probably part of it, but also part of it was, I want to tell the world in the most grandiose way I can think of, and this is a way to do it. And it can be both. Right. And it can be both, but I think that the spectacle part of it is what will forever keep queerness from being the norm because. You know, straight people don't come out and say I'm straight. Like that's the that's the always the go to is like straight people don't get on the mic when they get on to a sexual active age and go. By the way, everyone, I'm I'm, I'm straight. I had to come out and I have to tell you I'm straight. It doesn't happen. And so, like, as long as we keep doing the opposite of that, which is queer people coming out in this grandiose way, I feel like it hinders the normalcy of it. 
And again, right. it's still complicated, right? You, he, he has every right to do this as someone who was part of a spectacle. The Bachelor is a spectacle. That's what it is. And uh, uh, this is in conversation with that kind of spectacle. I just don't know if it's necessarily good for the community as a whole because it just it feels like it pushes against things just kind of being and existing, which is what we want. We want to exist. We want to be able to exist at the core level, basic human rights and existence. And I feel like public coming outs like this just kind of go against that a little bit. But it's tricky, I think, because we and, and you mentioned this earlier it's like not all lgbtq plus people are good yeah. you know i think we look at that in terms of caitlin jenner's politics for instance or people like ellen degeneres who we've spoken about before on this podcast and i think one of the things that comes this is both a good and bad of amplified visibility is people's recognition that not every lgbtq plus person is going to be palatable to everyone right. and i think that for a long time that was the desire because that was the the goal was making you feel making the hetero the cis hetero world more at ease with who we are but anyway all this to say i am i was gonna say i'm happy for colton but like i'm not that would be a lie i am ambivalent i i i was and i also was gonna say i look forward to seeing what he does next i don't um for me, I think this is, I'm going to put the lid on the bottle of the Colton conversation and kind of put it on the shelf. I'm just not really interested. And especially when there are so many things to devote my time and attention to, right. like Zac Efron's face, LOL, <laughs> um, that I just don't think this is something that I want to continue to have in my brain. You might say, well, damn, you spent a lot of time talking about it today. And I did. And that's because it's been occupying my brain. And I'm hoping through this conversation to have exercised it out of my body because, um, you know, as we are heading into Pride Month very soon, um, I think that it's really sort of important that we sort of examine the current state of affairs within both the LGBTQ plus community, but also the perceptions around the LGBTQ plus community culturally in the broader sense sure and i just don't think that uh i don't think we it feels reductive to borrow a word from madonna to have colton underwood be the most talked about lgbtq plus person especially in a world where um so many other fabulous lgbtq plus people exist so but we'll, but we'll put a button on it there but speaking of fabulous lgbtq plus people <laughs> Because you know me, I love a transition. Uh, yeah. I am really excited today to have uh, one of the greats on our podcast today. So without any further ado, let us turn it over to our interview with the great Law Roach. Let's do it. He is the image architect with a penchant for turning his clients into style icons. He grew up in Southside Chicago and embarked on his career as a vintage broker, collecting and curating vintage pieces before moving to New York to open his first boutique, Deliciously Vintage Harlem. Shortly thereafter, he returned to his hometown to open Deliciously Vintage Chicago. He began his work as a stylist and image architect working with Zendaya. Together, they successfully turned her into one of the fashion world's biggest and brightest stars. His other clients include Celine Dion, Carrie Washington, Anya Taylor-Joy, Naomi Osaka, Tom 
Tom Holland, Ariana Grande, Tiffany Haddish, Mary J. Blige, and many more. Some of his other accomplishments include being the first black person to be featured on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter's Most Powerful Stylist Issue, and joining the judging panel for the hit TV series America's Next Top Model. In 2019, he acted as creative director for the Tommy X Zendaya fashion line by Tommy Hilfiger, which premiered at Paris Fashion Week. And in 2020, he sat alongside Megan Thee Stallion and others as a judge on HBO Max's voguing competition show, Legendary, which will be returning for a second season later this year. He is precise, he is gracious, he is tenacious, he is real. He possesses an authentic and considered POV, which he imbues into all of his work. He teaches us that fashion is so much more than clothing and bigger even than a lifestyle. He grants very few interviews, and that's why I am all the more delighted to be joined by one of the all-time greats, the fabulous and ferocious Law Roach. Law, thank you so much for being here. I am excited to talk to you as both a fan of your work and as a fan of how you articulate the work. We did an interview back in March 2020 on the phone, and I remember being so struck and so charmed by every word, and so I'm very grateful to have you on here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's start by talking about award season right off the bat. When this airs, we will have just come off the Oscars, the finishing line of an epic red carpet season. You've been outfitting Zendaya, Anya Taylor-Joy, Aldous Hodge, Kerry Washington, Tiffany Haddish. Am I forgetting anyone? It will also be Priyanka Chopra, Jonas. Work. Okay. Yeah. Of course. Of course. It's like, of course, I make the list and there's got to be somebody else because you are that busy. What have these last few weeks been like for you? Besides the stress, what are some of the mm-hmm. other emotions that you vacillate between? It's been joyful because I've been getting such a great response from people who have been enjoying <laughs> the looks. You know, I think that all my clients make the decision to do full on glamour for, for these events. And I think the world needed it, right? I think we've been on so many Zooms, top up and pajamas. And I think that the world was really hungry for a little glamour and they wanted to see the gowns and they wanted to see the jewels. And you know, the one thing about fashion is it has the power to transform and transport us places. So I think that the biggest compliment people will say to me is that this season, this award season has made them happy. So. I think it has for so many people. And I think social media has played a really interesting role in all of this because I know particularly for some of these gorgeous looks, we don't get to see them walking down the carpet. It feels like a robbery in a sense. And thanks to social media, and you are so savvy with your social, honestly, thank goodness for your social media. Otherwise, we wouldn't get those full-length Zendaya looks in particular because at the award show, they're seated for the most part. How has social media over the last year changed your work as a stylist? I think social media has become my my book in a way. It's become my resume. So I don't think that really changed, but I think we are a little bit more cognizant of creating more content for that reason. Uh, I think a good example of that was Anya Taylor-Joy at the Golden Globes. I was so in love with that look and I'm so happy that she's having this moment that she really deserves because... Anya's been in a lot of films. She's done a lot of work. And I think the Queen's Gambit finally showed the world who this girl was. And that Golden Globe and that dress, the Dior Okatour dress that was custom made for, for mm. us was just such, such an incredible, incredible look. And I think all the content that went around that day kind of went viral and 
It was really fun. So we've been really cognizant to give more than what we usually do because I think it's needed, right? There, there isn't a, a traditional red carpet. So the content makes makes important. And it, it just it just goes along with the narrative and help tell story. So I want to get into a hot topic right off the bat. It's going to be a little long-winded, but but bear with me. In okay. a Golden Globes review published on February 28th in Women's Wear Daily, Booth Moore directly asked, quote, where were the Black designers? She said, quote, for all the discussion about the lack of diversity inclusion in the HFPA membership and the Golden Globes snub of every single Black-led ensemble film in the motion picture category, there were precious few designers of color represented on the virtual red carpet. And that's something the talent could control. In the era of symbolic, valueless dressing, which was on full display at the Biden inauguration, it felt like a missed opportunity for stars to say more with their clothes. End quote. You got on IG Live, thankfully, with stylist Jason Bolden the morning after to break it all down. You spoke mm -hmm. a lot of truths that morning, including calling out the fact that it wasn't until recently that major houses started dressing black women. And then you said this, quote, what people don't understand outside of this industry is there's still a list and I'm still not on that list. This list consists of five white women and this is the list that is presented to talent. So they think, quote, if I don't work with these women, it's not going to happen for me. It's this lie that perpetuated at these big agencies, at these big firms. I'm wondering if you could speak to this some more because that felt like, it felt like going to church for so many of us to hear you and Jason on Instagram Live the morning after in real time responding to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, where do you want me to start? Um, <laughs> I think it was a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uninformed. To to not to not even know if black designers were on our rails as options for that particular award show. Yeah, because you don't know that. But and at the end of the day, the best dress wins, right? All the time. Like people see what we do and they see us as celebrities because we work with these celebrities. But at the end of the day, we are in the service industry. My job and my only job is to bring the best dress. So if a best dress came from a bigger house, then the best dress came from a bigger house. You know, I have been a champion for black designers, small designers, independent brands from the beginning of, I always say my and Zendaya's career. We've always, I think, speaking of WWD, one of the things that kind of launched our fashion careers is this blue and yellow coat that she wore. She was 15 years old, I think, 15 or 16, she wore just walking around New York during fashion week and someone took a picture of her and she landed on the cover of WWD. And that was two sisters that went on to compete for the LVMH prize because of that. So we've always championed all type of designers. So, mm. so yeah, it was just, that was wrong. I think for her to say, and it's tough, you know, this industry is primarily dominated by white women. And I've been so blessed to carve out a space for myself with no help. You know, I've, I've been always a disruptor. It's, it's so, this is such a big question to answer, but yeah, it's, it's like, we still, I still feel, you know, not a part of the crew in a way, for lack of a better way to say it. You know, even though I've, I've risen to a certain height in this, in this business, thankfully, and, and people enjoy my work and I have the most amazing clients but yeah, I still do get the feeling like I'm not saying people are closing the door on Law Roach. I'm not saying that because I'm a black man in this industry that I'm, you know, treated a certain type of way. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is I still get the feeling, you know, what I mean? the feelings are strong. You know, I'm the only black 
person in a room sometimes and at the end of the day, that makes you feel a certain type of way. Or, you know, I've been having a lot of problems with journalists lately. One journalist said that, that my work was luck. I'm like, it's not luck at all. You know, it's, it's research and time and, and energy and thoughtfulness and hopefully talent that goes into every look that I, um, I do for my clients. And then I had another journalist who asked me specifically about two about two clients, Carrie Washington and then Anya Taylor. And then when she got to Anya, it was asked, it was the exact same questions. And she got to Anya and she said, you know, did you have any requests from Anya's team? And I was like, why would I get a request for Anya's team about her look? I'm like, that's not the way I work. You know, my my clients trust me and they trust me to bring them the best dress. And it was just, and then she said, well, I don't know if it's a puppet master pulling the string somewhere. And I thought that was really offensive. I'm like, you know, Law Roche is no one's puppet, period. Mm -hmm. And I hung up. It's just the way people word things. And, and then I have to think like, would she have said that to some of my white counterparts? You know, would she have insinuated that the decisions aren't theirs, but of someone else's? So those things that, that become really hurtful, you know, and it makes me question if I was not a black man in this industry, would I still be posed these same type of questions, which I don't think I would. Talk to me about what compelled you and Jason to get on the IG Live the morning after, because I thought in addition to finding it just such a wonderful conversation between the two of you, it felt really wrought in real time emotion that you wanted to be able to use both of your platforms to to speak in response to something that had been alleged against you that wasn't yeah. true. Yeah. And you weren't going to take it sitting down. You were going to say, wait a minute. The record is wrong and I'm going to take the time to correct the record. And mind you, this is the morning after you just had this spectacular night. You are a busy man and no doubt you were tired, yeah. but something had to stir you enough to say, no, I'm not going to take this lying down. What was that? I think that we felt we were up all night too, discussing that <laughs> and going back and forth and, you know, rereading the story. I just felt like we owed it to the world, right? We owed it, and I'll say the world, and, and of course our world is so small, like, and I know that, like, I just feel like we needed people to hear our voices, right? To see us and hear us at the same time, because a lot of times when we do interviews, it's always edited in a certain way. I'm like, I didn't really say that like that, or I said more. So we just took that time to kind of like, to let it out. And, and I think that Jason, really, really needed to do that because the, the picture that they used for the story was his work and his client. And you know, people don't really read full interviews. So if you take that title and that picture, it's automatically insinuating that he did something wrong or he didn't do enough of something. And he asked me to do it with him. And I was like, sure, you know, I think, I think people need to hear our voices and especially younger stylists, you know, younger stylists of color really, really needed to us to clarify what that meant and, and how wrong it was. At one point during the live, you said, quote, a black celebrity letting their white stylist put them in a black designer just doesn't hit the same. Can you unpack <laughs> that a little? Um, sure. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tough one. No, it's not tough at all. I just, for me, you know, it's fine, right? Let's, let's start at the beginning. Talent can work with whoever they choose to work with. I am not saying that all black talent should work with black stylists. But what I'm saying is if we are in a climate that we are all as people of color and black creatives 
trying to elevate each other, then I think that it, for me, we need to hold our Black talent to a certain standard. And you have to think, if you hire me to do something, you are supporting a Black-owned business. You know, and so at the root of it all, I am a Black-owned business, and mm -hmm. I would look to the people who look like me to support me first. I think Zendaya said something very powerful a few years ago. She said, if it wasn't for Black talent, there would be no Black stylists, right? Because we've all got our, our start and our chance with them, with our black talent. And it's, it's great when I put Zendaya and Christopher John Rogers, right? Cause it's, it's or another black design because there's, there's a story to it. It's more of a story. There's a history. There's a, a, a relationship. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yes. it's just, it's, it's, it becomes something so much bigger. And it's like the black talent when a black designer placed by the black stylist, it's, it's becomes part of this beautiful, beautiful narrative of us as a community supporting and elevating each other, right? And sometimes to me, when it's done by white stylists with black talent, it feels a bit performative. It feels a bit that they feel like they have to do it or it's the thing that should be done. So the emotion around it is different. Right. It just, it's just, it's not the same to me, but that's my personal opinion. You know, people might disagree with that and that's fine too. And again, People can work with whoever they want to work with, but it's like, it's just, it's just, it's not the same for me personally. Yeah. And, and I just want to say to put a button on this conversation, mm -hmm. I really want to recognize the emotional labor of having to wake up perhaps after a sleepless night and get on this live and deal with the situation like this and even feel like you need to come on here and correct the record. Because as you stated, this is an injustice that you guys had to have this article come out in the first place and then feel that you needed to come on and set the record straight. I'm grateful that you did that, but I also want to recognize that that's a burden. But that's part of the trauma of, you know, of this industry and, and being um, not white, <laughs> basically, mm. yeah. Let's go back to early law. I want to point to a January 2020 profile in Chicago Magazine that says this, quote, and then there's the whole unquantifiable part of the whole Law Roach thing that can't be taught or faked. He'll tell you it's simple. It's just that Roach loves women more than anything, loves the idea of them, the glamour of them, has since he was a kid growing up on Chicago's South Side. And when Roach goes about dressing a woman, there is an element of divination to the process. He sees them. Simple as that. So I want to ask you, who was the first woman outside of your own family, one that you knew or one that you gazed at on screen or in the pages of a magazine that you fell in love with? Two. Um, the earliest one was Barbie. I, I, I always credit me being a stylist for my mother allowing me to play with Barbie dolls in a time where parents didn't do that. You know, you had, you play with trucks and you play with balls, footballs and basketballs. And I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to dress Barbie and I was obsessed with Barbie. And I was so happy when my sisters got, got to the age where it wasn't baby dolls, but now it was Barbie dolls because I wanted Barbie. Like I want, I made clothes out of socks and, you know, I cut her hair. I did everything <laughs> you know, that, you know, uh, a little gay boy could do to express himself. So Barbie was definitely the first. And I remember, I don't know how or where I saw this, but I also remember seeing Cher with the long bone straight hair with the Bob Mackie gown, which I had no idea was a Bob Mackie gown at that time. But 
uh, I can't re really remember where I start to see those first images. My grandma and my grandfather also love reruns, right? And so they would watch reruns of Charlie's Angels. And like these women were like stunning to me and they were so impeccably dressed. And then that went on to be Dynasty. Uh, and it was like all these glamorous, glamorous women. And so it was just like, I just felt like that's what women were and that's what they sh should be. And I need to find out a way to be a part of that. Mm. I find that particularly compelling, especially the way that Chicago Magazine sort of stated that, because I think it's that sort of reverence for women that is so clear in your work and makes it so much more than just putting dresses on women. I feel like what you do, and you've articulated this before, it's so emotional. And that's what I think elevates it beyond just styling. That's why you are an architect and you are not a stylist. You are an image architect. So you mentioned your grandmother. You are really making me blush. Like you are making me blush. Well, I, I just honestly, you are the best in this business, period. Ooh. And it has to be stated to me. If you are ever made to not feel that way, it's like, let this moment be my effort to correct the record. Fuck those fucking journalists who make you feel any other way than because you have not only have you put in the work, but you just you are the best anyway. Thank okay. You. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. So you would accompany your grandma thrifting mm -hmm. after church on Sunday or junking as she would call mm -hmm. it, which I have to imagine helped shape your taste level. What do you remember about those weekly trips? Um, I just, you know, at first I couldn't stand it. I was embarrassed. <laughs> I was embarrassed by it. I couldn't stand it. And, and then it became this thing that felt like a treasure hunt, right? It was like, you never know what you're going to get. And my grandmother was really into finding like porcelain and, you know, she would find all type of silver flatware. And, and then she would also do clothes as well. And so I used to just watch her and then she would be like, sometimes she'll say, pick your grandma out something where pick me out a dress. I think she knew that I was special in a certain type of way. So then it became like, I wanted to go more and more and more. Like I didn't want to go to church. I just wanted to go thrifting after church. It also felt really fantasy because you just never knew what you would find. And I think that became really exciting for me. And I, that was probably the first time that I really got to touch women's clothes and, you know, and, and see the shoes and, and, and kind of play with life-size clothes that weren't just Barbies. 
There's a lot of grandmothers out there who might have that experience of watching their young grandchild in a store like that touching these dresses and and seeing that go off and they might see that as some sort of red flag as Mm -hmm. some kind about oh that might indicate that their child might be homosexual Mm -hmm. did you ever have that experience or did you feel it sounds like you had the kind of grandmother that embraced this aspect of who you are I really think that my grandmother my grandfather as well just really really loved me I was the first grandchild so I was always you know really really close to them and around them a lot and I do remember I was maybe in sixth grade and my grandfather tried to have that conversation where he asked me uh he was trying to ask me but he couldn't get the words out he was just like he just kept saying you know people tease you for for being a certain type of way and I was just like no grand you know and I knew what he was asking but I wasn't ready to say that yet and I knew he was doing it out of love because he wanted to protect me uh, but they knew that I was different they I've I've always spoke like this I've always had the same type of mannerisms I think always had like a feminine energy and nobody ever tried to stop me from being that way. No one. I had my mother only girl. She had five brothers. Tough, tough. tough. My mother was really tough, too. And they, no one ever, ever tried to change me. No one ever told me the way I was acting was wrong. You know, so I think I think now that I think back around it, even though it wasn't said, I was surrounded with a lot of love until very recently. I never like a proper coming out. Like I never felt in. So I never felt like I had to come out. It was actually really beautiful because my family loved me and supported me and let me be this little boy. I have a picture and I had a suit on and cowboy boots and I had pink rollers in my hair. Like my grandmother had rolled my hair because I wanted my hair to look like her hair. And that's what she used to do the night before church. I have a picture with these pink sponge rollers in my hair. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that nobody ever tries to change me. Cause, so I never felt like I had to hide anything. And I think it's really important to hear stories like yours because I feel like too often than not, we get the stories of parents not accepting their child, of sort of telling them that who they are is wrong in some senses. And I think it's great to sort of texture this conversation by saying that there were some parents out there that saw their child for who their child was and accepted it all along and not only accepted it, embraced it. Tell me this much. You said up until recently, you didn't have to have a coming out. Did something happen recently? Yeah, so I was invited by Scout Productions. They did a, a, a whole coming out thing on Facebook, a show. And I think I was on it, Demi Lovato. Um, it was a few people and people were like telling, coming out and doing their coming out stories. And so they asked me to do that. And then in the middle of it, I swear it was like therapy. And I was like, they were asking questions. They was like, so you've never come out. I'm like, no, I've never come out. Because again, I've never felt, I've always been the same person as even as a young, young boy. And I don't know if that's the proper politically correct term to say, but I just never felt like I was in, you know? So it was like, I've always been out. I've always been the same person. But that interview and and that episode, you know, it was, it was literally my coming out because it was the first time that publicly, you know, you're one of the girls. We kid around like, you know, I'm one of the children. But I had never really said like, hey, I'm Law Roche and I'm gay, you know? So that was, that was really, really, really interesting to me. That's incredible. You had a somewhat unique upbringing in that you, I read this, that you were occasionally bullied and taunted with words like faggot, but that you hung out with the tough guys in high school and they would have your back. How did those experiences shape you? I'm really a street kid. I grew up in the streets. Like I said, my mother was really tough. She had five brothers. So 
my mother and my, and my uncles were the family who used to, like they grew up in the projects in Chicago. And so they were fighters because it was so many of them. My mother would get in street fights, my uncles. So I just grew up really, really tough. And it's like, when you grow up in that environment, it makes you a certain type of person. So I've always had really thick skin, but I've also always really been popular. So it was kind of like this weird juxtaposition between being bullied and then also being revered in a way and protected. You know, when I say I grew up in the streets, I like, I really, really grew up in the streets. Like, you know, my big brothers in the streets were, you know, gangbangers and drug dealers. So, you know, I had a certain reputation, like, you could say what you, you could call him whatever you want, but don't fuck with him. You know, like, cause if you fuck with him, then you fucking with them. And then I also would like, I would fight you, <laughs> you know, he's like, you just gonna, you can't push me around and, and call me nice. Faggot, didn't really bother me so much because uh, I would I would almost rather someone call me a faggot than for me to be invisible because I'm gay. Also, I'm black, you know, our culture is a little bit different, you know, so, you know, those words are tossed around a lot, you know what I mean? You shouldn't call people those, those are bad. But when I was growing up, it was like, you know, people would say that like, if you didn't have to be gay for somebody to call you a faggot, you know what I'm saying? If you, so, so, so that, with my tough skin, my thick skin, I could handle, I just couldn't handle being invisible. Right. Like I couldn't handle you looking past me because I was the gay boy in school or I was the gay boy, you know, at the party. Like that would hurt me more than, than being called that word. You studied psychology at Chicago State. In what ways do you use your background in psychology with the work you do today? I think that a lot of, one of the things that people don't realize about being a stylist is really cerebral. It's all psychology, right? It's being able to, to somehow get people to see things the way you see it and, and feel it the way you feel it. So it's, it's a lot of communication and then it's nonverbal communications. It's, you know, paying attention to that. Like I pay attention to what makes the girl's eyes light up or what makes them have that little wiggle, you know? So, so I pay attention to all that. So it's all psychology, honestly. The actual clothes are, are secondary. I think people work with me because of the way I make them feel and not the way that I make them look, you know? Because people, it, people can hate that dress, but if one of my clients loved the way they looked in the dress, then that's the right dress. Right. Who cares what the world say? And you said that about me earlier, like I am emotionally committed to women and to my clients. And, and, that's, and I think that's what, that's what my skill set is. There's no one in the world who cannot pick a dress and put it on Zendaya. <laughs> it's, it's not that, it's everything else. It's everything else that goes into it. The dress is the easy part. I have to say too, and, and we spoke about this in our last interview, but there's something about when you see the way Zendaya's eyes look in the dress and the way she's posing with it, the confidence that it imbues in her tells you just what you're saying, that it's not the dress. It's the way that the two of you working together achieved this moment that has her exuding a sensibility that's bigger than fashion. It's so much bigger than fashion. And I think that what so many people see in someone like Zendaya, when they say they want to be like her, it's not that they want to be wearing that dress necessarily. It's that they want to feel like what it feels like to be Zendaya wearing that dress. And that's something that you both create together. And it's a remarkable thing. Thank you. Thank you. And she's been on record saying so many times that since I started working with her, she was a really, really young girl. We had one situation. She said, 
And I forgot, it, we were wearing something somewhere. She's like, but what if people don't like it or what if? And I just turned to her, put my hand, I rested my hands on her shoulder. And I said, who gives a fuck? Who cares? What if, who cares? How do you feel? And she said, I feel beautiful. And we've never had that conversation again about anything. And she said, and it changed her life. It literally changed her life. And all of a sudden she had this confidence that, that was poured into her and then she poured it out to the world. And to all those little girls who watched her and still watch her, you know, and it was, it was just that one, that one conversation. I just said, who the fuck cares? Mm. And she's always says that she always says that that helped her become confident. That's such a powerful gift to give someone. Was there someone in your life that gave you that same gift, that gave you that same sensibility that you passed on to Zendaya? Yeah, I think, I think again, I was raised in this tribe, right? And I think, you know, now that I sit back and think about the lessons that I learned because I didn't really understand them. Now, my mom used to say that to me all the time. She was like, she, my mom used to say, they used to talk about Jesus Christ. That's what she used to say all the time. The people persecuted and condemned Jesus Christ. She was like, so who are you? Of course, people are going to make fun. Your last name is Roach. You know what I'm saying? You're this really feminine little boy. She's like, who cares? They talked about Jesus Christ. And I'm like, you compare that. Like, who am I to let somebody tear me down when they did it to the Savior? <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Right. So let's talk about how you and Zendaya first met, because obviously a lot of people are familiar with this work that you all are doing in present day. But like you mentioned, you two go way back. How did that first meeting come about? We actually celebrated our um, 10 year anniversary. Mm. I had a vintage store in Chicago, as you as you probably know, because you're so well informed. And I love <laughs> that. And one of her father's friends, best friends, um, lived in Chicago. And then she moved. She used to shop with me. She was my client there, Deliciously Vintage. And then she moved to LA and she called me. She's like, you know, I really want to play in clothes. Can you pack me up, you know, some fabulous vintage pieces and I'll fly you to LA and we'll, you know, play dress up and I'll buy a few things from you. I'm like, sure, of course, I would love to do that. And the day I arrived, she was like, oh my, she calls it in there, her niece. She's like, my niece is coming with her dad and she's doing this thing. And I told them like, maybe you should go shopping with them because you have a great eye and blah, blah, blah. She was 13 turning 14. And I went shopping with her and picked out an outfit. She was going to Justin Bieber's Never Say Never premiere. And that was a big thing. You know, it was the, the hugest, most important thing. And we've been together ever since. Like, we, I went back to Chicago. We kept communicating. She would do little things. I would send her a vintage dress here and there. I remember I sent her this blue vintage Victor Coaster dress. And it had these puffy, like, 80 sleeves. And we cut it and made it, like, a little shorter dress. And... You know, and so I would do that from Chicago every time she had something. And, and then I moved to L.A. And, you know, the rest is history. But we I'm the only stylist she's ever had outside of movies and film and some editorial stuff. But, yeah, it's just been me this whole time. Mm. I imagine it's a special bond formed by being with a client for a long time, especially so in this instance, when you saw her go from a teenager, a Disney girl, who brands were reticent to dress, you have said this in the past, to the superstar she is today, and always yeah. was. I imagine brands are not only willing now, but clamoring to work with you both. How has styling her changed over the years as a result of both of you becoming much more high profile? The thing that I'm really most proud of is that Zendaya, if you go back and look at, you know, our, our history on the carpets and events and stuff, she still hasn't worn a lot of 
the legacy brands and the big houses to this day. You know, she's been on the cover of Vogue twice and all these magazines. And, you know, people say she's a fashion icon and we make every single best dress list and all that. And she still have, has never worn. She's never worn Chanel. She's never worn Gucci. She's never worn Saint Laurent. She's never worn Dior. It's really a beautiful story and a story that anything is possible and, and people respect you when you hold your guns, right? So early in the day, we would get notes from all these houses, right? They would say, oh, she's too green or she's not on our calendar this year or come back next season. So what it did was it forced me to be creative, right? It forced me to build these relationships with these smaller brands and we just kind of stuck to it. It was a form that worked. You right. know, and it's like you you're fed these fallacies that that if you wear this house that somehow makes you more desirable or you know uh, 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 raises your profile and people are chasing to like I have great relationships with all those houses now you know and and I do use them for my other clients but it's just like and I'm not personally not using it for Zendaya it's just like there's so many beautiful dresses in the world like I don't have to chase these five houses to prove a point you know it's there's tons of, and I enjoy that. And I, I enjoy the relationship it creates. And I, and then we become loyal to each other, you know, and then right. I become part of their story and they become part of mine. They become part of Zendaya's and, or whoever else I put them in. So it's just like, you, it's, it's that Hollywood thing though. It's using that to make people feel they need it to, to be someone. And it's, right. it's a lie. It's not true. Do you keep notes about those brands who early on were no's that might come knocking at the door wanting to be yeses now? I have all the emails. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I'm petty. I have every single email. I have every single email chain of people who, who were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I As get it, should. right? I get it. I get it. Like, especially before now, it was brands had certain lists. And I think that's, that makes sense, right? You have a list of girls who you feel or desire to feel fits the aesthetic, right? And so I understand that part of it. And I understand that the dress goes to the girl who gets the most press because they dress, celebrity dressing is for press, which press, you know, somehow way to sales. Like, I get it. I get the form. I didn't understand it then because I was really green. And I get it now. But it, it was disheartening back then that, all the girls that were on the list and all the girls that you thought can get this press and, and be beneficial to the brand for wearing the clothes were all white girls. They didn't take Disney girls seriously back then. Disney girls weren't real actresses. So it was it was tough all the way around. But yeah, it was like those girls that was that were on that list, they were all white women. So it was like, so that again, it goes back to the the fallacy that black girls couldn't sell magazines, you know, or black girls can't sell clothes or luxury goods or high jewelry. And it's like no. <laughs> so I, I do love the fact that, that my relationship and my work with her has helped to shatter that wrong thinking. It absolutely has. I want to ask you about two other clients. The first one is Ms. Celine Dion. Yeah. My, and this is one that really gets, um, it talks to what we were speaking about earlier about emotion. My sense has been that you really brought out a joy in Celine in the wake of her husband's passing, a joy found through fashion. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair assessment? Celine's words. She's, you can find interviews when she said that. She said that the the clothes and the fashion and our relationship help her grieve and and when she when I heard her say that like I just I cried I cried me and Celine had a, a few really intimate moments and things that she said to me 
that just put me in tears because when I got the call from Celine that she wanted to meet me and possible work with me, I hadn't dreamt that big yet. You know, when my manager at the time said, Celine wants to meet you, I'm like, Celine who? And she was like, Celine Dion. And I was like, don't play with me. You know, I hadn't <laughs> dreamt that dream. And when I finally met her, we had a beautiful conversation. I think we spoke for like two hours maybe, or what seemed like two hours. And then she called, they called me the next day, it was like, Celine wants to offer you this job. She wants you to come to Paris with her for two months and do her day-to-day -day wow. wardrobe. And they was like, are you interested? I'm like, I'm crazy. Of course I'm interested. Um, and I remember the first fitting, we had this huge room and just piles and piles and piles of clothes. And I got a few notes, like what she likes, what she doesn't like. And then I had some little secrets that I brought along just in case, you know. And we had this, I think, five-hour fitting. Um, Celine's really incredible because she wants to try on everything on the rail, whether she likes it or not, because she wants to know why you like it. And she wants to see why you like it and then give it a chance. And she, she's so open-minded about fashion and so informed about fashion. Like, Celine still gets every magazine. She would do tears and she had books of things that she loved and inspiration. It was really quite incredible. And I started to see that the things that were the most non-Celine were the things that she liked. And mm -hmm. so then I'm like, okay, push all this to the side. Let's go here. And we laughed and she ran around. <laughs> it was incredible. And so, and then I started to see like, okay, there's a Celine that we don't know. Mm -hmm. At least I didn't know. And, you know, and I was like, she wants to have fun. She wants to wear clothes and she wants looks, you know? And I think, I think she had been buttoned up for so long, you know? And, and even to the point where we started to think that she was much older than what she was. So I'm like, you're, J-Lo's age, you know what I'm like? <laughs> you know what I mean, you're two, two or yeah. three years younger than Holly Berry. I'm like, right. why do we equate, because she's been around for 30 years, so mm. we equate her and then, oh no, I was like, right. okay. So now my mission is for the world to see this young, exciting, sexy, courageous woman. So that became my, that became my goal. And that's, that's what we did with the clothes, like putting her off white and putting her in Vetmont, like these, these new street brands that people, you know, the queen of Vegas and sequins and rhinestones was not supposed to be in. So it gets totally. disrupting, you know, people's idea of, of, of who could and who should wear these streetwear brands. And mm, why absolutely. Yeah. Well, I would say mission accomplished. Let me get your opinion. One of my favorite Celine looks from a long, long ago is that infamous backward John Galliano look from, I think it was the 1999 Oscars. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think it is an iconic fashion moment. Um, many people see it as an iconic fashion don't, but I just want your take. I think it was before its time. You know, I think that a lot from back then, I think was just before people weren't ready for that. I think it's iconic. She has an incredible archive, an incredible archive. And so I, I, I wanted to know, did she have it? But I don't think she has it. Ugh. We had someone reach out from, from an exhibit that wanted to do it, but she, she, no one seems to know where the jacket is, where that, that look is. Mm. Um, and she archives everything. And this is a, a whole entire machine that deals with her archive, uh, which is, oh. I always, when I worked to, I was like, we need, really do a retrospect of your career through your fashions. It, I think it'll come one day. I think it, I de definitely think it will come one day. And it, because the thing she has and, and the system of keeping up with it is quite incredible. But I think that that look was before its time. It was stunning. Like I would love 
that if one of those if that one of those jackets came up on eBay or in the auction somewhere, I would definitely definitely purchase it for my archive. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. And again, I just want to underline the fact that I really feel like this is an example of your work being so much more profound than just clothing. It's like the power of your work and sort of giving her, I don't want to call it a second life, but I do want to call it just like a renewed spirit. And I think as a result of her renewed spirit, it makes us feel so good because we want Celine to be happy. She's a legend. We want her to feel like the legend that she is. Okay, another newer client of yours. I one thing about that though. It's so funny because I, I, I had a call with a potential client and it was like, oh, we know you don't really, you don't, you don't really do street style. I was like, I kind of invented street style with Celine Dion walking out of that hotel every day. You know, oh. like, you know, kind of been there, done that already, you know? Yeah, it's like that lack of research and then the assumption that they're going to tell you you haven't done this thing when it's like, actually, I have. But uh, yeah. thank you for that lack of credit. Talk to me about Tom Holland. I don't have a specific question per yes. se, but please just tell me something good about my short king. Tom at this point is a brother, right? Like Tom is such, and then we're talking about some fashion stuff, but Tom is such a good person. Like during the pandemic, randomly he'll he'll FaceTime and he's like, he's like, mate, I just want to come call in and check on you. Just make sure that you're healthy and happy. And you know, and I'm not really good with that. Like I'm not really good with checking in on people, but he's really, really good at it. And And he told me, you know, at least once a week through the lockdown and, you know, updated me on, on, on things that he was doing and asked me what I was doing at house to house. And he's a really, 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 really kind, kind person. And Tom knows what he wants. You know, he there are some brands that that he specifically asked for because he likes them, the way they cut and the taste of and the way they make him feel. And um, yeah, I think I think his style has has really, really elevated over these last couple of years. And and he loves it. He he's he's a he's really like oh, I don't care, but he's like oh, I do care. You know, he's one of those type of guys. And I I I love love working with Tyler. Tell me this much. You know, you mentioned that he is a nice guy, and you, and you speak the same about Zendaya. And I know that this industry, and ho not just fashion industry, Hollywood is full of a lot of not great people. How important is it for someone like you, having been doing this for so long? I mean, obviously you work with a lot of talented people, but how important is being nice? Because I feel like we talk a lot about the importance of talent and all of these things, but but I, I know from my experience, nice people resonate the most for me. What's been your experience like with that? I'll go back to Celine Dion really quick. I've been on sets with her where she walks up and introduces herself to the grip and the gaffer and <laughs> the PAs and say, hi, I'm Celine, nice to meet you. Hi, Celine, nice to meet you. Thank you for your day. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your talents. Pleasure to meet you to everybody in the room. Mm. Like, imagine being the sound man who people look past all the time, right? And Celine Dion walks up to you as Shakespeare and says, thank you for being the sound man, you know? So being nice, and not so just to me, but everyone else, room is really important to me and working with nice and kind people became really more important for me during quarantine right because we all sat in our homes and it was like all these all this shit that we really cared about and we thought was so important is not important 
So yes, you could be the most talented person in the world, but if you're not kind and nice and respectful and appreciative and grateful, then it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't really move me anymore, right? Mm. I think quarantine and, and, and COVID just put things in perspective. It's like, I don't care how many awards you have or this amazing body of work. If you're, if you're not kind, I don't really care anymore. This is a little bit of a heady question, okay. but in our last interview, I mentioned how you were the first black stylist to cover the annual Hollywood Reporter's Stylist and Stars issue in 2017. I asked you at the time how, three years later, you would characterize the landscape of stylists of color within the industry. You gave a very honest answer, telling me that it's a touchy subject, but that there really isn't that much growth. This was months before the racial reckoning that our country has been facing, and so I'm curious, how has your opinion about this subject changed over the last year? Do you think that there has been any substantive change since the last time we spoke? I do. I do. I really do think that there has been a lot of change. And we've seen that in the opportunities people are getting. Black stylists would do incredible work on magazine covers, editorials, and Black photographers being elevated to a great place. So I think there is a lot of growth, but I also think some of it feels like tokenism, right? It feels like we are giving these opportunities to these people because we have to, and not necessarily that we want to, you know, but it, it's still, whether it's tokenism or not, it's still, it's very much giving people opportunities, you know, for people to get in rooms and things that they would not be associated with or had not been associated with before you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and all the things that we went through in this country in the last year. I just hope that that now that people are getting a chance to prove themselves and show their talents, that people honor it and respect it and, and keep giving the opportunities. And it's not, a, you know, who's hot right now or what's the one Black name that we can call, you know, to do everything, to check a box, you know? So I just, I just hope and I pray that the windows that have been open don't start to slowly close over time and then we're right back to where we were. You mentioned earlier that you've been in a lot of rooms before where you are the only black person in the room. Obviously with COVID, we haven't had the opportunity to be in a lot of rooms. Are you optimistic that come the time when we are all back in rooms once again, that you will look around the room and see not just one or two black people, but see more equal representation? Yeah, and as you know, and when I say I'm the only black in the room, then I'm usually the only person of color, period, you know? And I just think that every every job I do, every every brand, every everything should be representative of the way the world looks, you know? Not just, not just Black people, but it should be, like we all have an opinion. We add value to every situation, our experiences as a Black person, as an Asian person, as a, a Brown person, adds value to every situation because our experiences are different. I, I just want to see that period. You know, I want to see that everywhere. And, you know, I've been using my power or my profile or whatever to ask for that. You know, like people have to understand, like you have, you have a, a responsibility to do your part. I try to do it as much as I can and, you know, and choose the teams that I work with that I'm able to work with, you know, photographers and hair and makeup and, and just put people in situations that, that we've never been in before. Because I think what it is, and I'll be really honest, I don't think every situation is a racist, racism situation. It's just that 
people want to work with people they're comfortable being around. And so if you're, if you're in a situation and everybody in a position of power has looked just like you, you, you know, some type of way unconsciously don't understand that somebody who doesn't look like you can elevate and, and be in a position of power, just like the people who do look like you. So it becomes a thing of you, of me getting into a room and showing that a black man can compete at a certain level and not just compete, but excel and dominate at a certain level, you know, but if I didn't sneak my ass in that room, cause no one really ever let me in anywhere. Like I found little ways, like, I'm like, oh, it's a crack in that door. Let me pop in, you know? So it's like, I show people, like I have a lot of situations where I'm on set, like doing a big ad campaign and the AD or who would go to my white female assistant, like, hey law, I'm such and such, because that's all they've ever had. That's the only example they've ever seen. So it's not, I don't take that as you're racist. I'm just taking like, you haven't had an opportunity to work with all this before. So let me show you how incredible it is for me to be here. You know, so it's just, people are trained, right? If you come and you've done all these jobs, you've been an AD in all these huge campaigns and the person that who holds my job has always been white, blue eyes and blonde hair, then you're going to go to the white, blue eyes and blonde hair because you're conditioned to think that's what it looks like. So what I'm doing again is disrupting people's ideology and ideas of what I should look like. Well said. You joined the panel of America's Next Top Model for cycles 23 and 24. (laughs) I love that change in expression. (laughs) The show last aired in 2018, but has not been officially canceled, so it may be revived at any moment. As candidly as you want to be, did you enjoy your time on Top Model? I did. I really did. I, I enjoy, I love Rita. Like, I think that season was really cool. And I made some some real friends like Ashley Graham and Drew Elliott. But when Tyra came back, it became really real because I grew up on America's Next Time Model, right? So <laughs> America's Next Time Model taught us lingo, right? It taught us fashion. It took us to places we had never seen before. So like I used to, me and my friends used to run home so that we we would not miss them. Uh, um, and it was glamorous and it was like these beautiful girls and it was tiring, you know. And I also think that, you know, Miss J, J Alexander really did a lot of things. Like that was the first time I saw a man walking in heels and it wasn't this clumsy kind of like parody of, you know, of a one, but it was a skill set. And then, you know, I, I had my first, idea of, of of a trans woman from America's Next Top Model. Like, I think Tyra and that show don't get a lot of credit of, you know, pushing the needle in culture the way they did. Um, so when she came back, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm literally living in the house that Tyra built. And it's like these things that were so important to me growing up. Like now I'm sitting on this stage with this, like next to this phenomenon, you know? So I had a, I guess I'm a crier. We were doing a photo shoot for it and I was standing next, I was like, this is, this, my whole everything is that I wake up every morning and say, anything is possible. Everything is possible. And I think that me being on that show after all those years of just being a super fan, it was just another testament that anything is possible. Mm. Everything is full circle and we, we, I think we quietly manifest things. Oh, I know I do at least that I didn't even know that I was attracting to my life. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really incredible being a part of it. 
And I love what you say about how groundbreaking that show was, because I think for a lot of people that are just on social media these days, they see certain clips pulled out and the show has this perception from its early years of being super problematic. And perhaps there are things even Tyra has expressed that she regrets, but there's a lot of golden moments throughout those early seasons that I don't think get enough respect. And particularly, as you mentioned, just how much diversity that show had to offer in its early seasons, but also just like showing the realities of so many different people's lived experiences, not just as models, but as human beings, bringing all these different people from different walks of life together under one house. Okay, I want to ask you about a specific brand that we talked about last time that is back in the news. I want to ask you about Dolce & Gabbana, if you don't mind. Maybe you knew I was going to ask, I don't know. You recently put Aldous Hodge in D&G, gorgeous. Uh, I asked you about continuing to outfit your clients in D&G in our last interview, and you said this, quote, did I disagree with what happened, which was in reference to the China incident that people can Google if they are inclined? You said yes. Anytime you offend an entire group of people, there is a problem. But am I also a person who thinks that people deserve to see what they did wrong and to correct and to be forgiven for things. Yes. So they're back in the headlines of recent suing Diet Prada for $600 million in damages. I'm curious if you are surprised that people aren't so willing to forgive. I'm just curious for your thoughts on this conversation in general to the degree that you're comfortable talking about it. Yeah, of course. I, as a, as a Black man in this country, can just cannot be part of cancel culture. I just, I think it would be so hypocritical of me, you know, the, the way Black people have been treated and villainized in our culture, I, I just cannot be part of cancel culture. And also, it's not my decision whether someone who's paying me to dress them will or won't wear a certain brand. And on a personal note, like, I've been to Domenico Doce's house multiple times. I've had dinner with him. He's fed me pistachio gelato off his spoon. You know what I mean? Like he's giving me slippers off his feet. Like I feel like when I'm around him, I feel like I'm around my grandfather. You know, so I would be a hypocrite to say, now if we ever had a, if we were ever to have a conversation about the situation, which we, I'm sure we would never have, and I'm not inviting that. But if we were, I would, I would have an opinion about it, right? I would have an opinion and I would be able to have a discussion and to articulate what, what the problem for me was, right? But can I cancel Domenico Dolce? As absolutely not, you know. And we also have to like it or not, they have, they do, and has always made really beautiful clothes. And it's like I am a stylist. I am in the service industry. I am not a politician, you know, at all. You know, I do have a platform and I do speak out, but I am not a politician, right? I am. My first responsibility is to bring my clients beautiful clothes. And I think there's something to be said about having a personal relationship and knowing people in a different way than people that don't know them and how that informs your POV. Are there any brands that you refuse to put your clients in? No. No. When you look back at the myriad looks that you've made, so many iconic ones, is there one that stands out to you that you're particularly proud of, not necessarily because of how it looked, but just it stands out to you in sort of maybe the feedback that you got from the client or in really feeling like it was a moment that transcended just a garment? I think the the big, the I'm going to say I cried again, shit, was a couple. One was Celine Dion at the Billboard Awards with the Stefan Roland, the white cloud under that chandelier, that voice, that song. We were nearing the 20th anniversary of 
Titanic and the song that really, really catapulted her career. And it was like, it was just like so beautiful. And I remember me placing her and, and fixing the dress and then the chandelier came down and then the flute started. And it was just like, it was so magical. And I was not the only one crying. Like there were grown men, other grown men in that audience crying. There were rappers that were like shed a tear. It was, it was just so beautiful. And it was really the first time that I had stepped out of my body and watched my work as just, just a fan. It was the first time, like I literally had an out of body experience and I just, just gasped and I just started to cry. It was, it was so special, but fashion again has, has the capability to do that. Mm. So that was one. The second one that I was really proud of was Zendaya at her first Oscars in the Vivian Westwood with the faux dreadlocks that, that, you know, that comment was made. She has such a tiny frame that this hair to me overwhelms her. Like, I feel like she, she smells like patchouli oil. <laughs> <laughs> or weed. Yeah, maybe weed. But then it also started a conversation on what's appropriate for black women's hair and what's, what hair is appropriate to go here and what hair means in the workplace and school. So it just started this, this global conversation. And, you know, I had dreadlocks at the time. Her dad had dreadlocks. She was around these two these two strong-bodied and personality black men, and and you know that whole look was just homage to us. You know the way she handled herself in that situation. She was 16, 17 years old. So I was really proud of that, and that's a that I think that look is also part of pop culture history, right? And I was really proud of my work with Ari, with Ariana Grande, on the last two tours. Like I I watched the Netflix. Um, documentary, which I did the costumes for that tour and everything that's in there. And I just watched that back and I was like, this was really good. You know, it was a way of kind of elevating Ari and, and showing people that she had grew up, but still holding on to what we love about her. You know, we love Ariana in a ponytail and an A-line skirt. Yeah, and you know what I mean? And, and she's just, she's just incredible incredibly talented and funny. So when I saw that, like I went back and started just looking at some images and videos of tour before the Dangerous Woman tour um, and then Sweetener. And it, it's just incredible. I'm just, the things I've been able to do and the, the people I've been able to be around in my career, it's just, when I think back, I, cause I just live, right? I just live, I get up and go to work like everybody else. And you know, and just, I'm, I'm so busy. I don't get a chance to reflect and, and things like this and speaking to people like you, it makes me reflect on, on every, and I've only really been doing this for seven years. So it, it might feel like 20 years, but it's only been, it's only really been, I've been in LA for seven years. So the things I've been able to accomplish in those, and that's such a short time has been really remarkable when I take the time to actually appreciate it. Not only that, and, and you know, we can say you manifested this to an extent, but you worked your ass off to get to this place. And I think that it's like a testimony to, yes, like you have had these incredible moments that have happened and you've built them all. You've made them happen for yourself. And I hope that you do take the time once in a while to look at this career of yours and just marvel at what you've done. And not only for fashion, but for all of the clients that you've had, how you have impacted their lives, uh, made them feel beautiful, taught them about kindness, the importance of kindness. Let me wrap up by asking you this, who is one celebrity in the sort of Celine Dion ilk that you would love to dress? Someone that sort of is quite established, but you would love to get your hands on them and maybe bring a side of them out that hasn't been seen by many. 
First of all, I don't answer that question because I am really loyal to other stylists. So if they have a stylist, I think it's kind of disrespectful to me. Like I want to style somebody else's client. So, and then I also never think of it that way because with Celine Dion, I never thought about that. I think that the universe will put me in someone's life and them in mind exactly at the right moment is supposed to and when it's supposed to happen. But you know, I've also I've dressed Celine, I've dressed, I've dressed Mariah, I dressed Mary J. Blige. So, you know, I've I've done all the all the girls with that's the importance divas and and the most amazing voices. I've dressed almost every person who is considered the voice or voices of our decade. So, you know, I've been, I've been very blessed. So I've, I've, you know, and when, if another one comes, she'll come at the right moment and I'll welcome her with an open heart and open arms and, you know, do all the thing and create magic and, and all that stuff. Celine's incredible. Mariah's incredible. Um, I have really great Celine and Mariah stories and Mary and Ari and, you know, Demi, I did Demi's last tour. It's just like, I've been, I've been around like some really, really talented people and I've learned a lot of lessons uh, over the years working with these iconic, iconic women. And, you know, I helped create a couple icons. So, you know, it's, it's been a good, it's been a good run. Listen, dare we say you are an icon yourself. You have leveled up to that status and it, it needs to be said. I want to thank you so much for your time. I know that your time is very valuable and I really appreciate it. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all of your fans out here who your work is bigger than clothing. I think if we can take away anything from this conversation, it is that. What you do is so much bigger than that. You change people's lives. You're an inspiration for so many and you are such a force of good not just in fashion, not just in Hollywood, in this world. It's an honor, and I don't take for granted you taking the time to be here today. And I just, uh, I marvel at you. I appreciate you so much. And I, I will do an interview or whatever you ask me to do whenever. You're the best. Thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs> Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.